All right, we are in 1 John chapter 4. You may have noticed it as we've gone through 1 John that two of the phrases that keep coming up, that, that keep getting repeated over and over again in 1 John are we know and you know. Uh, John repeatedly uses some kind of statement of knowledge, something that we know, that you know, uh, just some examples. By this we know that we have come to know him. By this we know that we are in him. You know Jesus appeared to take away sin. You know him who is from the beginning. You know that he is righteous. Over and over again, John wants to appeal to believers who profess faith in Christ that these are things that you have known from the beginning. These are things that you know about Jesus, and we hold these together. And John really wants, as we've said all along, wants his readers who are trusting in Jesus Christ to have assurance of their faith. They are in this circumstance where they are being tried and, 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 and wondering because of some of the experiences that they're facing around them. He wants them to know that if you are trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, then you have confidence in that. And so he's given what we've looked at in large part has been an, an experiential kind of knowledge. What I mean by that is He's talked about if you live these things out, and in particular, he's emphasized the love of the brethren. If you, you love and serve other people, there's an experiential kind of assurance that comes from, from doing that. And the reason for that is because we know our hearts that by nature, we are not loving, sacrificial, um, generous. We're not inclined in those directions, but it is because of God's good work in us that changes us and changes our desires. And so there's this experiential assurance that as we live out the truths of Scripture, we are assured that it is the Holy Spirit who is at work within us. That's why Galatians 5 speaks of the, the fruit of the Spirit, of love and joy and peace and kindness and patience and things that, that aren't ordinarily part of our nature, but that the Holy Spirit cultivates within us and changes us and changes our desires so that these things are produced. Uh, we ended last week at the end of chapter 3, and the last verse in chapter 3, verse 24, says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. And he's talking really to that experiential piece, which is as we keep his commandments, as we obey God, it is a demonstration of the fact that, that God is dwelling in us and we are abiding in him. And that is because the, the Holy Spirit brings to us the very presence of Jesus Christ within us. And so he is changing us to be more like Christ. And so he's using that phrase, we know, that experiential dimension to our assurance. I want to think this morning as we move into chapter 4, of perhaps something a little bit more on the, the doctrinal level of assurance. He's speaking more of not just we know by experience, but these are truths that we know. These are, these are things that we hold to. This is, our faith is based on a knowledge of truth. And, and that's really where he's going to emphasize in, in these opening verses. And, and this is significant, Particularly, again, as he's writing this in the first century, he's writing to these readers, and we've talked about this before, young Christians. They don't have copies of the New Testament. They, they can't simply open their scriptures and read. They have the, the Old Testament scriptures, but probably even then relatively limited access for the typical believer. Um, but what they have are 
um, letters, testimonies, um, from apostolic letters, things that have been passed down from the, the teaching of Jesus Christ, what would have been elements of the Gospels. Um, they, they have some of that in writing, and they also have then the, the, the traveling preachers, those who come through and who preach the word to them. The, the, the men, on the one hand, like Paul and Silas and Timothy, and then on the other hand, those who would come for whatever other means they, they were bringing and, and whatever other teaching they were bringing. And, and so in particular, we see John writing to an audience that is concerned because they've had these individuals who have been in their midst, who have professed to be a part of them, fellow believers who went out from them, who seemed to differ with them in some way, and now are, are coming back with sort of what they would call new teaching, something deeper, something more spiritual, or, or whatever it might be. And, and, and no doubt they are professing to still be followers of Jesus Christ, but the problem is that what they're teaching doesn't sound like what the believers have known from the beginning. It doesn't sound like the gospel or the truth of Jesus Christ that they had been taught from the beginning. And so there is this shaking of assurance. Here's what, what I, I, I believed in. Here's what I've trusted in. And now these who I've known, who, who seem to profess faith in Christ, now are teaching something different. How do I deal with that? And so here in 1 John 4, verses 1 through 6, John puts a more doctrinal test on their assurance and really does it in two parts. If you, you can see in the section, verses one through six, the, the first part begins in verse one with beloved. He identifies his audience as those who are objects of love, both his but primarily the Lord's love. They are beloved. And then verse four begins with little children where he kind of shifts. And so there's two parts to this section. In, in the first part, he wants their assurance to come about by means of discernment as they grow in discerning error, in being people that know what's true, and so much so that they also can now perceive that which is false and that which is undermining the truth, so that he wants them to grow in assurance. And then secondly, the second part, he's really calling them to be this unified body of believers that holds to an authoritative body of unchanging truth. You, you all together are listening to, sitting under the, the teaching of God's word, and that should bring assurance as you come together corporately. So let's, let's look at verses one through three first in just this area of discernment. He says, beloved, 1 John 4 verse 1, beloved, do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. First thing let's think about is just this use of the word spirits. We understand when he speaks of the Spirit of God in verse 2, he's referring back to the Holy Spirit that he identified in chapter 3, verse 24, the, the, the Spirit of God, that which comes forth, who, who is sent from the Father and from the Son, and who comes to dwell in us and bring to us the very presence of Jesus Christ. But he's also talking here about these spirits, testing these spirits, not believing all of these spirits who come. And, and it's 
the potential at this point for us is to, to sort of brush this off and think in our sort of modern way of thinking, well, I don't really, I don't feel like I, I've necessarily engaged with an evil spirit. I haven't encountered a lying spirit or demonic possession. And so maybe this is more kind of first century. And, and, and I just want to help us see this, that this is speaking very clearly to us when he speaks of testing the spirits. The New Testament does speak of, of, of spirits, both good and evil spirits. When the scriptures speak of them, usually referring to good angels and fallen angels, we would refer to fallen angels as evil spirits or as, as demons. But there's another way that you can use this word spirit that's pretty familiar with us and, and, and generally would have been understood in the first century, and that's when we talk about the, the spirit of the age. The, the, the spirit of our culture. We understand that to be sort of the, what, what's driving people's thinking? What's sort of the, the philosophical underpinning that, that pushes something forward? The spirit of the age is sort of what's behind it all. Certainly can have demonic influence to it, but, but John's, when he says to test the spirits, he's not suggesting here that we're just sort of questioning in the air, putting these questions out to evil spirits, posing questions to test them. He's really talking about, you have these teachers who come, you have these influences that come into your life, you have all of this that, that you are processing, and, and the challenge for you and I as believers is to test what's behind it, what's, what's underlying it, what's driving it. Is, is this this teacher, this influencer, this whatever it is, what animates this person? What empowers this person? What's their authority? What, what, what controls this teacher's spirit? Is he submitted to the spirit of God or to a spirit that is led by the, the, the spirit of the Antichrist? The command at the beginning of verse one, there's two imperatives there. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. There's the two, the, the do not and the do. And that first one is... is is present tense, and that's important. It's continuous. When he says, do not believe every spirit, you could also say that as continue to not believe every spirit. And, and that's important because, again, this is not an isolated problem in time that you then had to test the spirits. Well, they didn't have the New Testament in front of them. No, it is to continue to not believe every spirit. And so this is just as relevant to us. The potential for his readers and for us today is still to be confused and led astray. That is a, that is a present threat. And part of the reason for that, he's identified already in verse one when he says, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is not a narrow, isolated problem. There, there are many who seek to undermine the gospel, whether intentionally or otherwise, they are undermining what is sound doctrine. And, and that is consistent with the multitudes of warnings in the New Testament against false teaching. You find it again and again in letter after letter that there is some sort of emphasis on the fact that there is this threat from people from the world who will want to somehow undercut the truth of the gospel, who will want to somehow change your understanding of who Jesus is, and they are heretics. And so the warnings are at the forefront of the apostles' teaching, and, and nothing's changed. We are not in a, a, a somehow more elevated culture in that sense. There are still many who claim uh, through their teaching, through their prophesying, through their works, things that really are not rooted in what is sound doctrine, things that are not of Jesus Christ, that are, are not of biblical wisdom and are not really from God, but are false and in error. The, the, there are spiritual 
powers still at work through human instruments who are proclaiming that, which they, they even may claim to be Christian, but is opposed to the gospel and to sound doctrine. So the call for the believer is to discern. To discern that which is from God and that which is not. And, and John here, in, 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 as we've said this before, sometimes in a very simple way says, here's, here's a way to do that. And in particular to his readers who are um, meeting with different teachers, hearing from different teachers, the standard that John gives to discern truth from error is questioning the teacher's underlying beliefs about Jesus. Who do they say Jesus is? How do they identify Jesus in person and in work? Who is Jesus? A, a sound Christology, which is a, a study of the doctrine of Jesus Christ, is, as one theologian calls it, sort of the gold standard. What do you believe about Jesus? Who is he and what has he done? In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul's writing to his believers in Corinth who are struggling with the same sort of cunning and deception that is coming, and they are seeming to embrace it or tolerate it. And he writes in 2 Corinthians 11, 4, if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed or a different spirit from the one you received or you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. He's saying, there it is. There is a body of, of, of truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus did and now the working of his spirit in you that you have been taught and when you start to, to modify that or to tolerate somebody who holds to a, a different view of Jesus, he says that there, there's tremendous danger in that. We, we must know and believe these elementary truths of salvation because they are not subject to revision. They are not to be changed. John says ultimately that one, what one believes about Jesus is a key test of orthodoxy, and he then summarizes a, 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 an orthodox view of Jesus in a very short phrase. Jesus Christ has come in flesh. Really doesn't sound very deep. We might think, well, that's not, not all that profound, and, and yet there's much there. He's, he's identifying, first of all, the person of Jesus Christ. He is Jesus, the name Jesus from Joshua, from God delivers, God saves. He is the Christ. He is not just Jesus of Nazareth, but he is the anointed one. He is the, the chosen one of God who is sent as Savior, and that Savior, anointed by God, has come in flesh. He's not some spirit being, nor is he just some ordinary man. He is the anointed one of God who now has come in flesh. And there's a reason that our translations say he has come. We might be prone to say there, past tense is he came in flesh, but he has come is to capture the, the verb tense there in the Greek, which is a perfect tense, which is, it's not just the historical fact that this happened, but the perfect tense says there's something happened in history, but it has implications ongoing into the future. And so his point in, in, in the translator's point in saying he has come is to capture the idea that Jesus did not, simply put on a suit of flesh at the incarnation. It wasn't God who just sort of put on this suit of flesh and then could take it off when he chose to and go back to his, his state prior to the incarnation. It is to say that 
Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is still the God-man. He is still fully God, and he is fully man, and that is crucial. It is crucial to the atonement, and it is crucial to his resurrection from the dead. Jesus died in the flesh. He did not, it was not some spirit being that just disappeared or manifested itself as a man. In full humanity, he suffered on the cross and suffered the excruciating pain of the cross. As a man, he experienced that, but it was also fully as God because that's what makes the sacrifice to be an atoning sacrifice. If it's simply an ordinary man who is suffering, well, maybe that provides some sort of example of some kind, but, but it is the fact that it is perfect God who is sinless who gives himself on the cross, but he dies, and he dies in the flesh. He dies for our sins as a man, and then the emphasis in the resurrection is that he rose bodily from the dead. He says, see here, touch my hands, touch my feet, my side, put your hand there. You will see that he, it's a glorified body. There's, there's differences to that body, but it is a body nonetheless. And that's what gives us hope and assurance when we read 1 Corinthians 15, that we in these mortal, frail, failing bodies, one day when after they are put in the ground, will be resurrected as new glorified bodies. And so the atonement and the resurrection hinge here on the fact that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. And also, the, the, the other thing that, that's so crucial here about Jesus coming in the flesh is he is revealing God to us. We certainly have the, the scriptures that, that give us God's word and that show us what God requires of us and what he supplies for us. But in Jesus, we get to see God. We get this manifestation now of God and we can now see him. And that's why John in his gospel writes in John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, now manifests God to us. We now see God in Jesus. And so that's why John says of these teachers, they are false prophets. Because not only do they get this wrong about Jesus, but what that means then is they don't really know God because Jesus is the one who has now shown us who God is. And so if they get Jesus wrong, then they get God wrong, then they get the gospel wrong, then they get your salvation wrong. And so this all has eternal consequences. They do not understand the atonement and how he saves. Jesus did not come as some example of God uh, as somebody who came to just show us how to, to, to love and, and to be a model of how we should live, Jesus is God in flesh, and he came to fulfill the Father's plan to redeem a people for himself by dying on the cross and paying the price for their sins. Verse 3, in, in, when it says, and, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus, that it's interesting that in the, in the Greek, he's actually got the definite article there, every spirit that does not confess the Jesus. And, and the reason that he's doing that is, the other way we would say that is this Jesus. He, it, it's John being very careful here to say, this Jesus, every spirit that does not confess this Jesus, that is Jesus, who is the Christ, who is also the one who is from God and who came in flesh, that's the Jesus that they must confess. Any other Jesus is just another, and he is not the same. He is not the one from God. And John's trying here to be very precise because he wants those who believe the true gospel to have assurance, but he also wants to say, the gospel and your salvation 
all hinge on who this Jesus is who gave himself, as he professed to give, as a sacrifice for sinners. He either is who he says he is and who the apostles proclaimed him to be, or you and I are in trouble. We don't have a savior at that, at that point. Jesus is not a son of God, a light, a word from God. He is the light. He is the son of God. He is the savior. He is the word who became flesh. And that's where John is trying very hard to be precise here. To say to his believing friends, his beloved, you, you can be kind and you should be gracious with people who have different views of Jesus. We should still love them because they are people made in the image of God, and so we should seek to actively love them. But we must be clear that their beliefs about Jesus have eternal consequences. It's not just a question of being mistaken or different. It, it, it is fundamentally, is Jesus who he professed to be? Is he Jesus Christ come in the flesh, Son of God, and if you do not believe that, the consequences are eternal. And so having discernment to think about these things and to test one's confession of faith, to be concerned that the one who preaches to you on Sunday holds to sound doctrine or the one who leads your Bible study or the one that's influencing you as you're watching some sermon online or listening to something as you're driving, it, it, to, to test one's confession of faith is not a bad or mean thing. This, this is just the, the spirit. You talk about the spirit of our age and it's, well, you can't, you can't really question you, you, you don't want to, that, that's judgy, and you got Matthew 7, judge not or you'll be judged, and so you can't do that. Matthew 7 is talking about hypocritical, sinful judgment where I am pointing my finger at everybody around me, and I am never looking at my own heart to see what I'm bringing to the table here, but I am really good at spotting your sin while all the time mine is just glaring in front of me. It, that's, that's not what John is, is addressing here. He's talking about the need for discernment, and so he says we are to test the spirits. We are to test that which presents itself to be as from God, as being as declaring God's truth, and see that it conforms to his word and to a correct view of Jesus. And so when people speak of their experiences, uh, speak of after-death experiences, speak of their experiences of communicating with God, the, the, the question is, does this person hold to a right view of Jesus Christ and is, he, is Christ and his gospel central to their thinking? Is that ultimately where they're getting even as they're describing their experience? And so the, the two imperatives that start verse one really remind us, do not embrace teaching just because it claims to be spiritual, just because it sounds sort of Christianese because it mentions the name of Jesus or God. Rather, test those things against what you have been taught from the beginning as Jesus has revealed himself and as the apostles have taught him as Savior. All right, let me read on verses four through six. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. All right, we've talked about this at the beginning. Two, two means of assurance here. One is brother, sister in Christ. You, you've put your faith in Christ, and so now grow in discerning error. 
uh, trust in what you have been taught, and, and grow in being able to identify that which is false, that which is counter to the truth. Now, the second thing he's talking about here is believers being united around an authoritative body of unchanging truth. You, you, you see in this passage already kind of a, a we-they. They are from the world. We are from God. Um, the world listens to them. God listens to us. Us, them, we, they. There's a corporate sense to this passage. He's saying on one side is the world, and on the other side is all who are trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation. And what's distinguishing the two is that the, the ones that are trusting Jesus Christ for salvation have gathered around, are unified around a set body of unchanging authoritative truth, and they are together holding fast to that. They are professing that. They are teaching that. They are obeying that. We corporately believe that our source of truth is God. We believe that God has revealed to us in his word what he has called us to do, how he has called us to respond. And so we, we listen to this body of truth and what it teaches about Jesus and our salvation. God loves the world. And we are to love the people of the world. But we should also remember that the world is wrong when it comes to eternal salvation. And that Satan is active in using the world to deceive people about the gospel and about Jesus Christ. Satan actively uses philosophies and ideas from the world to keep people in darkness, to keep people from repenting of their sins and, and turning to Christ. The world is not neutral when it comes to spiritual things. That, that's kind of the spirit of the age is that these are all sort of religions on a par with one another and you sort of try to take the, the good if you can from, from each of them, but they're all sort of on the same plane. The world's views are deadly and in opposition to the truth and they have consequences. You can go back to some of the philosophers and some of the influencers of past centuries and, and see how they have left a mark that continues through the culture today. 18th century philosopher Rousseau, who, who's one of his primary ideas was be true to your authentic self, that, that who you are inside and what you want and what you desire is who you are and you should be free to be true to yourself. And so ultimately my, my feelings, my sense of self is my highest authority. Sounds a little familiar from the 18th century now, here we are in the 21st century and this whole authentic self, what, I need to be what I wanna be. And so for Rousseau, as far as he was concerned, you're not sinful by nature. You've got these good desires in you, and it's just the influences, the forces around you that sort of shape you and lead you down bad pathways. And he basically saw Christianity as just another one of those external forces trying to coerce you to do something, to act a certain way, and keeping you from being true to your authentic self. These ideas are prevalent and they continue to work their way through the, the culture, through academia, and through all sorts of other means to, to speak to us about how important you are and putting yourself first, when indeed Scripture's calling us to, to love God and love and serve others and, and emphasizing in Ephesians how we already do. Love, love your neighbor as yourself, as you already are caring for yourself. Now, demonstrate that love for others. 
You can go back to the, the writings of Karl Marx, whose ideas have had profound effects on culture and largely in terms of power and economics, seeing all of life as issues of, of power and economics and who has the power and who has the money and how are they keeping others from getting that. And, and Marx argued that, that, first of all, God did not exist and that religion was essentially a, a creation of man in order to, to maintain that, that sort of economic balance. And so I, as the employer, as the landowner, as the one with money, love the idea of religion because if I can get workers who agree to the Ten Commandments, then they will be truthful. They will be, they will be people of integrity. They will be diligent and they will work hard. And in Marx's idea, that's, that's what religion was for. It was to kind of keep people in line. And, and again, I, I say all that just because the ideas have consequences. They, they continue to filter, and this is the world's system and the world's way of thinking, and those are just two examples. The world is not neutral, and so that's why John then talks in terms of overcoming the world, because there are these powerful, persistent influences, and he's trying to assure the believers to say, you have hope, you have Christ. In, in 1 John 5, 4, he says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And, and who is the object of our faith? It is Jesus Christ. The world is not a neutral place. I, I, let, me, let me bring this much closer to home. Studies say the average American spends at least seven hours in front of a screen um, each day, for most of us, that's, that's internet time of some sort, surfing of some sort, reading of, of things from the internet. The internet largely becomes our portal to the world. It helps us to sort of see the world around us and to, to sort of take in what the world is teaching and selling, and it bombards us with the world's ideas and advocates for philosophies of life. And so that, that's... That's when this applies, do not be believing every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. This, this is not just, well, I don't really watch much Christian television, so I don't have to discern. I don't listen to a lot of Christian preachers. I just come here. So I, this doesn't, that, that's the limit of my, no, no, you are, you are taking in philosophical ideas about life and about man and about man's nature and whether man is inherently good or is sinful and in need of redemption. You are taking in those ideas on a regular basis, on, on how you formulate then your thinking, that's what John's saying, test this stuff. Does it actually sound like, look like it is gospel-centered, that, that it is rooted in the doctrines that, that come from Jesus Christ? Because it's not neutral. And, and John, I, I think in his sometimes very simple way of thinking, is saying to the believers, you are from God. And that should distinguish you. From the world. It should, it should affect your thinking and the grid through which you filter all of life because you are from God. If you believe that Jesus is who he claims to be, that he is the Savior who has come in flesh, given himself as a ransom on the cross for your sin, died for you, and offered you redemption if you will trust in him by faith, by virtue of your faith in these truths, he says, you are from God. There's your assurance that, that he is holding you and keeping you and you belong to the very creator of the universe. When you look at verse four, again, it, it says, ESV says, little children, you are from God. And the word order in the Greek actually is flipped. It's actually the, the, the you, plural you that, 
that starts that. In other words, the first word is you, so that the CSB puts it this way. You are from God, little children. You say, okay, why is that important? First of all, in Greek grammar, when you want to emphasize, you want to underline, you want an exclamation point, you put it first. We don't have all of the other little helps. And so you put it, usually use word order and put it first. And so John is making the point, having just said in, in the previous verse, back in verse three, um, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Next word is, you are from God, little children. You are not of the world. You are different. You have been set apart by God and are trusting in Jesus Christ. And, and so the spirit of the Antichrist, yes, is active in the world, but you are from God, not from the world. Now, remember again, as he's writing to this audience who is troubled by these same people that they've known, people who left, people who had some problems with the teaching, and now they are still professing to believe in Jesus, but they're returning with this new kind of special spiritual knowledge and trying to bring that deception back into the fold. What, what John is saying is, friend, you put your trust in Jesus as coming in the flesh. You have believed that the anointed one of God is your savior and that he died for you and rose again. That's where your faith has been staked in the fact that Jesus saved, do not be moved from that truth. If you are not moved from that truth, you are clearly from God because you are believing that faith alone in Christ alone has saved you and caused you to be from God. And he wants them to have that assurance. And that's why he then says, and those that are from God, they've overcome the world. And you say, well, we're, we're still being bombarded by stuff. And I feel like I still, this is still difficult. I have to test these things. But his point is that the, the, the fact that he's using strong language to say, you are victorious over the world, is he's just echoing the words of Jesus Christ. Jesus, at, at the end of, uh, of the, the night before his, with his, his crucifixion with his disciples, John 14 through 16, gives us the record of his interaction with the disciples. And part of that is warning about what is to come and the fact that he is going from them. And in John 16, 33, near the end of that, he says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I... I've got this to the, I know the end of history as you know it, and then on into eternity. And Christ is victorious. The, the Savior is conquering. And so despite the fact that there is a world of hostility and opposition that is formed against Jesus and his gospel, and there is hatred toward that atoning sacrifice, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3, says, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Jesus is victorious, but there are still strongholds set up against him in the gospel. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. There are spiritual teachings and ideas raised against Jesus raised against the gospel, raised against the truth. And John is reminding us that what Jesus promised is true. We have overcome. Hold fast to that which you have heard from the beginning. Hold to this truth about who Jesus is and what he's done. 
And you are with the victor in this because he has already defeated the world. He enables us to be overcomers. John Stott summarizes all of that this way. He says, this overcoming is not so much moral as intellectual. The false teachers have not succeeded in deceiving you. Not only have you tested them and found them wanting, but you have conquered them by decisively repudiating their teaching. You have not succumbed to their flattery or believed their lies. And why is that? It's because the Spirit of God empowers you to know God, to read and to believe and, and to understand and to apply his truth so that it now becomes part of who you are and now helps you to grow in discernment and helps you come together with a body of believers who hold fast to that truth together. If you look again at, at verse 5 of First John 4, he says, They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. That verse 5 is, is, is saying there are many false prophets who belong to the world. They teach secular philosophies. They argue for atheism. Or they even come under the guise of, of being Christians who teach what Paul told Timothy was Doctrines of demons, demonic doctrines. Essentially, they, they teach a God who is small and insignificant and whose primary job is to make sure that your life is good, that, that, that this God is to, to give you prosperity and you, you have faith in him so that you have all kinds of good stuff. And that's really what God's most concerned about. Those are doctrines of demons because what the, the gospel centers in on is our need of a savior, our, our, the fact that we are sinful and in need of, of, of forgiveness and eternal life from him. And the world, though, as, he's, as John is mentioning in verse 5, that they are not operating in a corner. They are not operating in a vacuum. They are saying these things that are opposed to God, that undermine God, that undercut the gospel, and the world's listening. The world's saying, yes, that, that sounds right. That sounds good to us. And so the world is, is compelled by their arguments against the deity of Christ and against his atoning sacrifice. The world is cheering them on as they seek to weaken the authority of the Bible and try to undermine Scripture. The world says, that sounds right to us. Christianity is just another one of, of the religions. There's nothing significant about it that sets it apart. But verse 6, we are from God, and we are listening to that which is from Him. Verse 6 now describes this community of believers in Jesus Christ who are committed to the truth. They believe that there is sound doctrine revealed by God that comes to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in the face of the world's strident opposition to Jesus and to the gospel, the world's opposition to a message of holiness and sin and repentance and atonement and judgment, we who belong to Jesus Christ believe those things because we have put our faith and trust in that. We have come to know that this is who we are. Scripture has defined who we are. And we are able to rest in that. And now by virtue of that, we are eager to follow Christ because it's his spirit that's transformed us, who has given us eyes to see this and now to believe it and obey it. Those who are from God are unified around this 
common commitment to listen to God's truth from, from God's people. In the end, those who speak forth the true word of God are those who believe that Jesus is who he says he is and are devoted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which is why in, in our preaching, we, we, we continually seek to emphasize the fact that the gospel not only saves, but it is what you and I need as believers. We need to understand the grace of God and the empowering of God and the provision of God so that we can walk in obedience to him. And, and so we make that central. And what John is saying here is we receive assurance of our faith by gathering in unity around this body of doctrine. As we have come together, whether it's here on Sunday morning or in your home group or in a Bible study or with just a group of other believers sitting around having coffee and talking about what God is doing, your desire to hear God's truth, to understand it, to apply it, to have it go ahead and expose things about your heart, all of that, he's saying, that, that is a demonstration of God at work in you. That is the assurance that that, that truth is, is taking root in your life. John, again, from a very simple perspective, writes as one who watched Jesus face opponents. John saw the very religious leaders who should have been leading people and saying, here's the Messiah, say, you should kill this one for, for blaspheming. John watched all this and he saw Jesus say in the very presence of his opponents in John 8, 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Simple? It is. But, but ultimately, if you, are, if you are hostile to God's word or if you are trying to find ways to change God's word or compromise on God's word to make it more palatable both for yourself or for people around you or to explain it away, then Jesus and John would warn you that you are not of God because truth matters. If explaining away scripture, if trying to duck out of the responsibilities of, of being a people who by faith now walk in obedience to him, if trying to dismiss these things is what you do, truth matters. And, and that's why the world clamors after false teachers, because they are saying things that, that scratch itching ears, as, as, as Paul will say later. Um, the question ultimately comes down to, is, is Jesus... Who, who Jesus said he is, is, is that Jesus? The center of their instruction is the gospel at the heart of all that they proclaim. And that hope and that salvation, it, is that being put forth? Because both the nature of the teaching and the character of those who adhere to it give evidence of its source. It is either from God or it is from the world. And so, brothers and sisters, we are called to be wise, to grow in our knowledge of the truth so that we are people who discern, so that we don't just take in whatever the new philosophy, the new practice, the new idea, the, whatever the influencer says is the, the best way to start your day. Maybe, maybe not, but, but am, I, am I looking at it through this kind of grid? Am I testing this against what God's word says about who I am and what he's done and his spirit working in me to change me? And so we are called to discern and to gather together as a community around this body of unchanging truth. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your work in the hearts of your people here. Those who are trusting in Jesus Christ, I, th I think we, 
we corporately understand that it was not because we somehow got really, really smart and deduced our way to you, uh, but because in our lostness, you in your grace and mercy opened our eyes to see the truth that a savior has come and has given his life as a ransom for sinners and now through him there is life. And so Lord, thank you. Thank you for your spirit within your people to grow us in discernment, to help us to look at worldly philosophies and how they are just part of the air that we breathe and, and, and how your spirit calls us, challenges us, helps us to filter through these philosophies as they come to us in all different ways and to think about them and to test them and to see, is this of God? Is this what would please my maker, my savior? Is this consistent with the, the gospel that I know to be true that has rescued me? Help us to grow as a body of believers in discerning. Help us to grow as those who love truth, who are committed to the authority of a body of truth in a world that does everything it can to undercut the notion of God's truth or absolute truth. Lord, help us to hold fast to who you are and what you have proclaimed. I pray, Lord, this morning for those who are listening to this and, and are saying, well, that's, that sounds good for you, but I'm really skeptical that that doesn't compel me. And, and Lord, I, I believe that your word has already made it clear that, that those who are not of you, for them, this does not, does not register. And so that, that it, we are asking, Lord, for you and your sovereign goodness and grace to, to change hearts, to set in a desire to know you and to love you and to, to now see your truth for what it is. We pray that you would do the, the great work of, of saving souls through the proclamation of your word. Help us, Father, in our culture and in our engagement at work and with friends, with the internet, whatever it might be. Lord, help us to, um, to love as you would love, but to speak truth and to not compromise and to not be drawn in by things that would, that would lure us away from a simple faith in Jesus Christ and his good news. These things we pray for his glory and his name. Amen.